Does it matter if you put retirement savings in the older spouse's accounts first? Does Marion have a good VTSAX to VTWAX tax loss harvesting and portfolio rebalancing strategy? Those are the main topics today on Your Money, Your Wealth. Plus, Joe and Big Al help you make sense of fees, both from your financial advisor and on exchange-traded funds or ETFs. Big Al will provide pointers on selecting a good certified public accountant, other than him, of course. And finally, do 457 plans ever blow up? Go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click Ask Joe and Al on air to send in your money questions. I'm producer Andy Last, and here are the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Alan, we got Jeremy. He writes in. He's a supply chain manager. I don't know why. I guess this is a new uh, requirement that we're asking now what their occupation is. Is that what you're doing, Andy? No, that one was just uh, volunteered to us by Jeremy. He's from Cookville, Tennessee. So supply chain manager. I don't know what a supply chain manager does. Manages the supply chain. wonder what type of... Yeah, that's exactly right. See, you make sure you get your widgets. Very smart today. Essential supplies, I'm sure. Watch out. Um, Andy, Joe, and Big Al, thanks for all you do uh, educating your audience. I sincerely appreciate the ability to explain complex concepts in a way it's easy to understand. I also appreciate the occasional derails and comic relief. It's a good balance. I've learned a lot in a short amount of time, uh, thanks to your podcast, most notably... I didn't know until hearing it on your show that I can withdraw from my 401k without penalty starting age 55 if I separate from the company that offers the 401k plan during that four-and-a-half-year window prior to 59-and-a-half. This is a big deal since he plans to retire a little early. So 55, separate from service at age 55. You have full access to a 401k plan. As long as you don't roll the 401k plan to an IRA, then you have to wait till 59-and-a-half. So, yeah. Um, so he's got a question, Al. Yeah. Well, and before we do, let, let's let's be clear on that, because the if you have a 401k, an old 401k from another employer, that's that doesn't qualify for this special role. It's only your existing 401k with your existing employer. If you retire after age 55, then you can withdraw the money. Of course, you will pay taxes on it, but you won't pay the 10 percent penalty. So my question today is related to retirement savings for my wife and me. I'm 42, wife's 35. We invest 15% of our income into retirement accounts, uh, 12% into my 401k, and the other 3% in a Roth that is in my name. So nothing for the wife here, Al. Totally. No. Just it's all him. <laughs> Jeremy, the supply well, chain. Yeah, he's, about- he's, he's managing the supply of his retirement account <laughs> yes, of, um, in, in the family household, it sounds like he just—he's taking work home with them. Um, Apparently, there's money in supply chaining. It's—he's killing the game. Uh, we do not save any money into accounts for my wife because she's seven years younger, and so we feel that we would have to wait an extra seven years to be able to access the money without penalty. I'd be sixty-six when she turns fifty-nine and a half, and I believe that we would want to start drawing down earlier than that, potentially as early as when we're eligible for withdrawal of my 401k at 55. Well, she would be eligible too, Jeremy, at 55. It's not only supply chain managers get this rule. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. So if she saved right. money into her 401k plan, and if she separated from service at her age 55, uh, you're still good to go. Uh, we want plan to invest into accounts for her until we max out the 401k and Roth accounts, but we're only about halfway there, so still room to run. Uh, my wife works, but our company does not offer any kind of matching program for the retirement. I should also mention that my wife is named as the beneficiary. Wow. What a nice that's guy. A <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, well, thank you. Wow. I'm, I'm sure she's that's, like, well, thank you. That's not, that's novel. Yeah, it's very, you yes. Your wife is beneficiary. It's crazy. That's really I mean, great. I, I think this is I the could, first time I've I ever heard that. <laughs> I mean, I could feel the romance from here for doing that. That's awesome. Uh, even though by law, the wife has to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> be the beneficiary. She That's she valid. has to she has to, she, she has to sign off on it, Jeremy. Oh, yeah, boy. right. So if you want to do something other than. Uh, all right. Well, I don't know. I guess for the lack of equality, um, <laughs> I mean, if there's not, it, he's forty two, right, and he's looking at. Uh, all right, well, we're going to retire at 55, so he's got a 10, 12-year time frame, 13 years, something like that, supply chain manager, saving 12%. First off, I mean, to retire at age 55, uh, depending on what Jeremy's spending, he might need to save more than the 12%, so he's going to have to have his wife save a little bit of cash into her 401k plan. Uh, so the first step yeah. I would do is kind of do a forecast this way, is saying, here's how much money that I'm spending. Let's say Jeremy spends... I don't know, $60,000 a year. Where does he live? Cookville, Cookville Tennessee. Tennessee. I don't know. Him and the wife, maybe seventy five grand. Cookville, that's a pretty nice place. Um, and then you look at, hey, I want to retire in 15 years. So you take your $75,000 living expense, and then you use some inflation factor, maybe 3% from age 42 to age 55, and see what that $75,000 comes out to. Let's just assume it's 100000 Right, I'm guessing. I don't have a calculator in front of me. So if he wants to spend the same lifestyle in retirement at age 55, and he has a hundred thousand dollars that he's spent that he's normally spending, well, he's going to need a few million bucks in his overall retirement account to provide that type of lifestyle. Especially if you're trying to bridge the gap from 55 to age, let's say 67 to his full retirement age, where he's going to receive Social Security benefits. So that's a 12-year gap where he's going to have to produce 100% of the income. So that's the starting point to say, am I on track? Am I even saving enough? So is 12% enough? Is it 15? Is it 20%? Does he have to max out his plan and the wife's plan, God forbid? And then so she's going to have to name him as beneficiary. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> There's going to be some bitter talk conversation. Yeah, she she may or may not. She may pick another person. But yeah, I think that's I think I think that's good advice because you know it's I'm, not I mean, advice. Always... We're just it's conversation. Okay, that's good conversation, right? <laughs> you're, you're right. Good suggestion. Uh, at any a suggestion. At any rate, I mean that's always the first step, right? Is is when you you figure out if if you want to retire at age fifty five, you got to work backwards and do a little math and figure out are you on track to do that? And assuming that they are, although I would agree, saving twelve to fifteen, I guess fifteen percent total, uh, that's a good number, Joe. But it may not be enough to retire ten, 10 years earlier than 
other people if, if you know if people retire at age 65. So you just have to figure out whether they're on track for that. But I, I'm going to take this maybe a, a, a little different direction in terms of if you only have so much money to invest in retirement accounts, uh, should you favor the spouse that's older? Right. And, and I think that's not necessarily a bad idea because the spouse that's older will have access to those funds penalty free earlier. Right. So, you know, probably in this case, they're going to want to both save. I agree to, to be able for Jeremy to retire at age 55. But if you only have so much money, you might want to you might want to kind of favor that that spouse that's a little bit older, particularly because his wife doesn't have matching in the in her retirement account. Right. Um, but you you want to look to it. All right. Well, what 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 does a four hundred one k look like? You know, what what fund choices do they have? What are the fees? What are the expense ratios? Things like that. Um, Roth accounts, however, though, you know, they have full access to that money at any point um, of the contributions anyway, prior to fifty nine and a half. So, if you do want to retire early, folks, and you can even retire at fifty, you have full access to um, Roth IRA contributions. Uh, there is no penalties or taxes on the contributions if you choose to take them out we would probably suggest not to do that uh, but that that is a way to get penalty free cash um, if you're in a pinch so um, interesting question uh, but we appreciate it thanks a lot from cookville uh, tennessee just keep managing those supply chains jeremy uh, appreciate it how about marion Who's now signing them Clovis slash Fresno? <laughs> Clovis slash Fresno. Well, they're they're right together. Marion. All right. Hi, Andy, Big Al, and Joe. Is this a reasonable strategy or too complicated? Each year, create a taxable event by selling my VTSAX mutual fund shares that have a long-term capital gain. This amount is taxed at 15%. My tax bracket is 22%. When there is a major downturn in the market, then sell my BTSAX mutual fund and buy BTWAX, a substantial different mutual fund, thus creating a tax loss to offset my ordinary income in the 22% tax bracket. Um, no, it's not too complicated, but let's talk about, Al, what, what, what she's doing here. So let's say... Forget about the timing aspect. You know, when the market goes down and the market goes up and this and that, don't try to time it. Just put bands on it. Right? It, it's called rebalancing or tax loss harvesting is what she's actually referring to, which can be complex. But if a, you hold a mutual fund at $10 a share and it goes down to $7 a share and you sell that mutual fund and you buy something similar, right? It can't be identical. It needs to be different, but it could be somewhat similar. So then she creates a tax loss of $3 per share. So that tax loss then will carry over um, until there's a gain during that year. If there is no gain, then she can offset ordinary income up to $3,000. So that's kind of the premise of harvesting losses is that you can continue to harvest losses because those losses will offset gains into um, if, if there is no gains, then you can write off against ordinary income up to three grand. Yeah. And then the rest of your loss carries over to the next tax year and the following year after that and the following year after that. So, but her question is each year create a taxable event by selling her mutual fund shares 
that have long-term capital gains. So she's going to go, all right, I'm going to sell a mutual fund that has long-term capital gain. So then I have a capital gain, right? This amount is taxed at 15%. Yes. So any capital gain is taxed at 15% or zero or 20%, depending on what tax bracket they're in. Marion is in the 22% tax bracket. So when there is a major downturn in the market, sell my fund, buy another one, and thus create a tax loss to offset my ordinary income. So there's there's little confusion because right. if I if you sell at a tax gain, right? So that's a capital gain. The tax loss will offset the capital gain dollar for dollar for how much loss or gain that you have. If you have more loss than gain, you will offset the gain, but then any additional will offset ordinary income to a cap of $3,000. If she has a, or he, is Marion a boy or a girl? We don't even know. We'll we go. do this all the time. Marion is female. Okay. Marion, let's say, has a $100,000 loss and has a $50,000 gain. That would be offset dollar for dollar, right? So if she had a $50,000 gain, $100,000 loss, there is no tax on the gain. The fifth, right? Because she had a 100000 loss, there'd be a 50000 loss carryover. But she can't write all $50,000 against ordinary income. Only 3000 of the 50 would be offset ordinary income. And then 47000 would carry over the following year, depending on if she had any other capital gains or not. If she had more capital gains, she could offset it with her loss. If there was no gains in her brokerage account, she would then take an additional $3,000 off ordinary income. So it, it seems that she's kind of getting confused in regards to um, ordinary income, what's offset, what's not. So capital loss versus capital gain, anything more than that uh, will be carried over for um, until she uses it. And um, yeah, Al's. I think we just lost Al. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, he's back. Can you hear me now? Yes. I can hear you now. Yeah, you guys. You guys froze. The part I heard, Joe, sounded right. Yep, perfect. <laughs> we continued said. on. You and, froze and on I, us. I, yeah, okay. I think that, uh, yeah, the, the, the main concept, and people get confused about all this uh, this all the time. They think they're going to sell their stocks and, and use that against their salary or use it against a Roth conversion or use that against some other ordinary income, and you can't. You can only offset against capital gains, and then if you still have more losses than gains, you get to take $3,000 against ordinary income, and then you carry over the rest to next year, which I know you said, Joe, but that, that was right on. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to visit the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and learn more about rebalancing and tax loss harvesting. I've posted some blog and video resources, including the YMYWTV episode, Don't Let the Tax Man Ruin Your Retirement. You can also download eight timeless principles of investing for free and read the final installment of Brian Perry's blog series, Decision 2020, Your Vote and Your Money, on how to election-proof your portfolio. You may remember that Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, is the Executive Vice President and Director of Research here at Pure Financial Advisors. 
All of that stuff is in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, and it's all courtesy of Pure Financial. No thanks necessary, but if you really want to say thanks, the best way is to share the YMYW podcast and all the free resources so that others can laugh and learn, too. Um, hello, Joel. Thank you for that. <laughs> in parentheses, big, Joe. Yeah. Uh, big Al and Andy. Marcus here from Tennessee, Alabama. Well, Marcus, it's been a while since you've chatted. Roll Tide. Uh, great show as always. Keep up the excellent work. Below are my questions. Uh, to keep it short, I'll send another email a week later. Can't promise that one to be short. Uh, please discuss how expense ratios on ETFs are paid. Uh, ETFs, an exchange-traded fund is referring to, Alan. Yes. Can, can you calculate the average portfolio expense ratio by taking the average of the ETF expense ratios inside a portfolio? If someone has an actively managed portfolio with an advisor that uses a 1.14 AUM model, and this portfolio has an average expense ratio of 1.03, then is this person paying 2.17% in fees? I'm trying to get clarity on one of my mom's accounts. When asked about fees, her advisor said, your total program fee for this account is 1.14%. But I see these expensive ETFs in there as well. I could simply ask him the question since he's the advisor, but where in the fund would that be? Uh, thanks again. Um, all right. So a couple things. When you're, when you're looking at fees, there's multiple fees that an individual pays if they're working with an advisor or not. So an exchange-traded fund, there's, there's different flavors of ETFs. 1.03% um, expense ratio on exchange-traded fund portfolio seems fairly high to me. Um, if they're just following an overall index, um, that those fees should be like point. 0.03%, not 1.03%, uh, because there's yeah, very little, four, 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 yeah. right? 0.03%, And maybe they're actively managed ETFs, right? That that could account for a higher expense ratio. Yeah, and, and I've seen some of that as well, where, you know, you look at um, an exchange-traded fund, the difference between an exchange-traded fund and, let's say, an indexed fund, um, there's very little differences. It's just like how you're 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 purchasing them and how they're constructed. There's some nuances there um, because mutual funds you have one price where an exchange traded fund you buy it like a stock. So it kind of uh, depending on the price of the day. Um, and so anyway, I don't even know why I went there, but the fees on exchange traded funds are very, very low in most cases. So I would, Marcus, I would want to make sure that a that if if the, if they're charging one point oh three percent in exchange traded funds, then you need to make sure that you're you're looking at what types of funds these are, and tell your advisor why am I paying one point oh three percent in exchange traded funds when I should be paying point oh three percent. The advisor fee. Of one point one percent, one point one four. That's very standard within the industry, um, but I'm not sure why they're they're selecting some of these ETFs and, unless they're like leveraged. Um, and if it's your mom's account, 
Uh, so th- that sounds off to me. But yes, your your, your math is correct. Two point one seven percent in fees is what the total fee is for the portfolio. Uh, but the the expense ratio for the exchange traded fund portfolio just seems a, a smidge high. Yeah, that's that's right. The math is right, but there's actually even yet another fee, which is turnover, right? So the funds turnover, the, in other words, how often the securities inside the fund are sold is going to impact the cost as well. And that's something that's harder to figure out, right? And usually, let's say a 1%, uh, you know, 100% turnover is, is like a 1% additional charge right there, right? So in other words, if, if all the stocks are getting turned over the course of the year, you might have another percent on top of this 2.17. So you got to look at that too. Yeah, you you would want to go to the statement of additional information. Um, so you get the prospectus, of course, that we all read. Um, and then you have to ask for another document to really see the the, the true fees. Um, so that's the statement of additional information. But then there's also buy and sells. Right, so yeah, depend. True. So if they're buying and selling the exchange traded funds, uh, this could be a wrap account, and so they're saying, "Well, no, the total fee is one point one four percent. So um, you're not paying for any of the trading costs. We'll 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 bear those costs." Uh, versus if it's not, you know, you got the one point one four percent plus the expense ratios plus any type of trading costs that happen within the the portfolio. Um, so understanding fees is um, important, uh, but I would look at, are you sure she's in exchange traded funds? If she's in average mutual funds or, or, you know, actively managed mutual funds versus exchange traded funds, because there's not that many actively managed ETFs in the, the actively managed ETFs are um, based on like algorithms, you know, so they're still following an index and sometimes the company itself will create their own index. And so they'll say, Hey, we want to tilt this overall ETF more towards companies that have low price to book ratios or something like that. And then, or they're more value orientated or they're more growth or they're more small or they're micro. They're, hey, we're only going to focus on healthcare. So, but they're still buying a basket of stocks. They're not actively trading. The, the algorithm is on the purchase. Um, so it just seems high anyway. I don't know. Anything else to add there? No, I agree with that. It, okay. it does seem high. So, yeah, check into it. All right. So we got a question. There's, um, oh, Packer, Backer, Mike. Hi, Big Al. I love your show. Those other two who joined you, Johnny and Amy, uh, can listen to my question if they'd like. Look at Packer, Backer, Mike. What a... Yeah, right. <laughs> Bite my he tongue. did that just to get you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it worked. I've been a DYI for my finances and taxes all my life. I guarantee Packer Backer Mike has got sixty grand. He's a DYI and he's like seventy three years old. He's probably made two hundred thousand dollars for the last twenty years. He's a spender. Um, let's see. I forgot where I was. <laughs> I plan to retire sometime in the next two years and would like a transition to a CPA who can uh, not only prepare taxes, but assist with some tax planning. What should I look for in a personal CPA? What questions should I ask? Love the show. Packer, Becker, Mike. And the irreverence that comes along with it. He I didn't, didn't say I, because I, irreverence is too long. It's too long. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't want to say that. And I didn't, I, I, yes, and I didn't want to fumble 
Um, go Pack Go. So he knows I'm from Minnesota, so that's why he's saying that because <laughs> um, I'm a Minnesota Viking fan. Go ahead, Al. Help Packer. All right. Packer backer Mike. So uh, so you want a CPA. So I guess the, the first thing, you know, you probably you probably ask around for some some recommendations from your friends or if you don't have anyone that knows a CPA, maybe go to Yelp. But a, a lot of CPAs don't get reviewed. A lot of professionals don't really get reviewed on, on that. So it's kind of if you can, it's kind of best to ask for some recommendations from people that, you know, you know, maybe two or three. When you when you start calling them up, ask them things like, uh, well, first of all, what, what do they charge? I mean, that's very important. Uh, but in terms of getting a, a quality job from a CPA uh, with tax planning, you know, I, I guess just ask them how long they've been in business, what kind of clients they have. Uh, are their clients similar to what your situation, like if you're a business owner or real estate owner, is that the kind of thing that, uh, that they do find out if they do tax planning, ask them, do you do tax planning? And then if they say yes, uh, ask them, what does that mean? What, what kind of services can you expect at year end? Are they doing tax projections or are they just sending you a year in tax planning newsletter and, and you're, you have to kind of do it yourself. So it's, it, I don't see that. I don't think there's any magical questions here other than just, you know, getting to know them, find out, does their experience seem to be uh, relevant to what your situation is? Uh, is the cost reasonable? Have they been in business for a while? So I, that's, that's how I'd approach it. Alan, um, when you had your CPA practice, what was your, I, I mean, what client would you rather have a, a, a small business owner client or just a personal 1040. Yeah. Yeah. When I had my practice, Joe, I, I would say a small business owner was kind of my forte. Because uh, you could charge more. Well, and I, yeah, well that, plus I did a lot of business returns. So I, you know, I, I got good at that. And when there's business returns, there's more complex tax planning, which I enjoyed, right? Because there's interplay between the business and the, the personal return. So I ended up with a lot of just straight individual returns. I mean, you, you normally do as well, but yeah, no, I liked, I liked business owners I further specialized into uh, high tech companies, particularly software companies. I specialize. Well, in I, I don't want your own resume. I'm just saying Packer Backer Mike here. I'm just giving him a – I've never been a CPA. I never had a practice, yeah. and you know, right? So, But if I'm looking at – let's say the financial advisory space is that you, you know, advisors want to work with people that have millions of dollars because they can you know, charge a, their fee and they get more compensation for the, the work. But if you have a smaller client but then is asking for different things, maybe CPAs don't necessarily want to go down that path. So – you, 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 I, I could see why he's looking for, all right, well, what do you specialize in? I'm looking to retire. I want some ongoing tax strategy in regards to my retirement plan, cash flows, and things like that. Do you do that? I would say most CPAs on an individual basis don't do that type of planning. The CPAs out there that I've seen will do the planning for the businesses. They'll, they'll have the bookkeeping. They'll have that type of forecasting. But um, do, do you disagree? No, I agree. But the hard part is that they'll say they do it. Exactly. That, that's that's why you have to probe a little bit more. What what does that mean to do the tax planning? Right. I mean, most advisors say they do tax planning. And right. They don't. And they don't. 
You only have a few days left to get your free copy of the brand new book, Ignore the Hype, Financial Strategies Beyond the Media-Driven Mayhem. Written by our EVP and Director of Research at Pure Financial, Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, Ignore the Hype will teach you how to keep your focus squarely on time-tested strategies for meeting your financial goals without getting distracted by a constant barrage of news headlines. There might be some of those today. Learn the difference between short-term trading and long-term investing, how to fill Filter out the constant onslaught of information coming your way from every angle and separate the valuable content from the noise and how to build a foundation for investment success based on common sense and academic research. Stock is limited and it's only available on a first come first serve basis. So click the special offer button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com right now to request your copy. If the special offer doesn't say ignore the hype, you waited too long and we sold out. Click special offer now at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Um, Matthew writes in from Wisconsin, Alan, and he, and he writes, Dear Joe Lady. Joe Aldi. Joe Aldi. And that is called a what again? An, 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 now I can't say it. An amalgamation. Amalgamation. He came up with this amalgamation of all three of our names. Because he run in before, Al. And then he's like somewhere, he goes, I can pretty much guarantee that you've never heard of where I live. It's in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, so who cares? And then I came up with the name Lake Wanabagosh because I believe that's where Matthew really lives, but <laughs> it's a very beautiful place. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so thought it might as well be uh, Joe's Algamation of Wisconsin cities. Amalgamation. So, amalgamation. I think we need a new rule for the show. If it has more than like a couple syllables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forget about it. Amal- Conversion is three. Well, amalgamation. I've never heard of these words. Um, Al, do you use amalgamation in your vocabulary often? Uh, no, very seldom. Got it. Do have you, you have ever used in it? your teeth, Joe? <laughs> there goes Al's mic. I got, I got so excited I <laughs> dropped my mic. <laughs> Uh, well, he's doing a, an amalgamation is a combination. That's probably an easier way to say it of our three names. Yes. So we got, got Joe, it. we got Al, and D for Andy. Yes. Do I go to the dentist? Is that what you asked me? I said, do you have fillings in your teeth? Those are amalgams. Uh, no, I've never had a cavity. Thank you very much. Wow. I'm impressed. Yep. So anyway, um, thank you, Matthew, for this total sidetrack here. <laughs> Uh, thanks for discussing my previous question about trying to convert some pre-tax retirement assets into Roth uh, without leaving my job. The CRD angle is interesting, but fortunate, unfortunately or fortunately, we can't justify it. So I've been looking for some other paths to take tax-free assets. All right. So he has access to a 457 plan um, at a mid-sized nonprofit healthcare organization where I work. As often as I've drooled over the thought of it, I've avoided contributing, being non-governmental, is subject to creditors, and ineligible for a rollover. Uh, The organization currently has a good credit rating and is growing, but if these funds depend on its solvency over the last next 30 years, that seems a pretty significant risk to me. Uh, So we'll circle back to the 457 plan here. But uh, since changing our 403B contributions to 100% Roth last year, our MAGI has increased to very near or over the limit for direct Roth IRA contributions. I'm not intimidated by the back door. Um, Wow, that's aggressive. Uh, (laughs) And have no other IRAs, 
uh, but we've already made the contributions during the downturn. So I've been contributing to my 457 plans to keep our modified adjusted gross income below the limit to avoid penalty or recharacterization. Uh, so the question, in your vast and priceless experience, have you seen these plans actually blow up? Uh, we're already maxing out. All of the other available retirement vehicles, HSA, contributing to a brokerage and have cash to spare. I know it's theoretical possible, but I just can't determine real world how the risk plays. Thanks again for gutting out some of these questions. I hope this one's easy on the ears. I look forward to hearing your discussion as I ride around in my 1985 Craftsman. I don't even know what that is. I would say that's a motorcycle. Ah. Yes, or it's a lawnmower. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. <laughs> One of the two. Probably a really, really cool lawnmower, right? Yes, right. Um, no, I would have to look at the plan a little bit more, of course. But in general, we highly recommend 457 plans. So if you're a school teacher, if you work for hospitals and things like that, uh, a lot of um, nonprofits have both a 403B and a 457 plan. The 457 plan, you have access to several different mutual funds within the overall plan. Um, and in most cases, I've never seen a 457 plan that you have access to. I would have to look at, you know, who's the custodian on this thing? Uh, but yes, you could roll that into an IRA after separate from service. Uh, going back to Jeremy's question, if you had a 457 plan, you have access to the money at any point. Uh, there is no 10% penalties in 457 plans. Uh, so have I actually seen a 457 plan blown up? The answer is no. So I wouldn't be too afraid of it. Um, but I'm not speaking on his 457 plan because I have no idea what it is. And yeah, by the way, well, Craftsman is a riding mower. <laughs> all right. Oh, sweet. there you go. Okay, perfect. Yeah, at 457 plan, the money goes into a separate plan, so it's independent of the entity, right? So if something happens to the entity, the plan's still there. So, um, it. So yeah, go for it, brother. Go for it. And then it goes P.S. Joe. I was going to send you some spotted cow like you suggested, but since you don't technically give advice and didn't feel all that compelled, I guess you need some reason to visit. Well, well, thanks a lot. Send me the spotted cow because that is the best beer that you'll ever taste. All right. uh, Spotted cow did not pay me for that. Joe's going to tell you all about his fake tooth today in the derails. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Click the Get an Assessment button in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-994-6257 for your free financial assessment. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. I do have a um, one fake two. No, I go to the dentist. I go twice a year. Twice a year. Um, Yeah, I do have a fake tooth though right in the front, so I have a crown or a bridge. A bridge. It's a bridge. Did did somebody knock out your original tooth? What happened? Yes, I I, I knocked it out like five times. Oh, wow. Yeah, first time was roller skating. Um, and I was doing, um, you know, the chain. And I, I must have been in like sixth grade. It was wow. like right behind this really cute girl. It was <laughs> love and life. It was really cool. Then I tried to skate backwards. And then I, the bumper blew up. And then I chipped my tooth. And then I did it sledding. Then I did it um, playing football, playing basketball. 
I never wanted to get a flip or like a, um, I should have uh, did a, what's it called? Um, a, An um, implant? Yeah, implant. Thank you, Alan. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I didn't because. You still can, can't you? No, because yeah, I grinded can. down other teeth. I would have to get three implants. Got it. Uh, because I didn't want to take out the front tooth because, you know, you go on dates and then you got to eat and you can't have the little flipper. So you take it out. I don't care how good looking you are. If you don't have a front tooth, you'd look like something out of anyway. Plus, uh, plus you can't talk right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, the, you know, the drill. I, yeah, I, I, uh, recently. <laughs> got it. 